curious when that when I say intentional, what does that mean to you? But to me, intentional is getting really honest with where you're coming from. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. I am super pumped for today's episode because I hope everybody had a good 4th of July for the people in the U.S. And this episode is honestly a great tribute to how amazing the United States can be because of our ability to have a dream and go execute it. On today's show, I've got Sindhu Shervastev, and she's going to be telling us her story about how she grew up in a small town in India, and then she made her way to America, where she now is an acquisition entrepreneur and crushing her expectations, defying everybody else's expectations, and breaking through social barriers. So just a quick announcement, if you've not been hearing me talk about the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, I've organized all of the Intentional Growth Podcast Archive Library along with a bunch of videos from the five Intentional Growth Principles that highlight the core curriculum behind the Intentional Growth Academy, as well as the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard that rates you on how well you're viewing and running the company like a financial asset, along with five videos where I walk you through a case study that shows you how you can project out all three financial statements and connect them to your target EBITDA and normalized EBITDA valuation at a point in time so you can truly see the roadmap to get get where you want to go, go check out the link, the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. It's free access and it's in the show notes below. Now back to Sindhu, our guest. She legitimately broke through about every social barrier and cultural barrier you could think of. She grew up in a small town in India that she talks about her upbringing and she then got really passionate about academics because she did not want to be married off by the time she was 17. So she became an academic rock star and then she ended up taking out a loan to buy her plane ticket to come to America where she continued to be uh, a huge proponent of education where she then graduated from the Wharton Business School and she go went into corporate America crushing it in her corporate America job. She talks about her challenges that she had and why she eventually decided to make the leap and become an entrepreneur where she founded her first company called Meaningful Data and Sindhu is a rock star for data analytics, understanding data and what it means for a business and how to create the, a valuable company which got her interested into buying a company. So she stumbled across the phrase acquisition entrepreneur that you hear me talk a lot about. She read Walker Diable's book, Buy Then Build, decided to sign up and she participated in Walker's acquisition lab where people are, are taught how to find and then finance and purchase a business as an acquisition entrepreneur. She went through that program and she ended up acquiring a corporate events business. And you're probably thinking data, corporate events business, she gives her thesis of why the corporate events business was the right selection for her, and it's awesome. I got it. I'm so pumped to see what Sindhu is able to do with this business long term. I'm so excited for you to listen to this story because I personally love how she shows that if we have a vision and then we work and execute a plan towards that vision, she legitimately went from a small town in India to one of the top people in Wharton Business School to buying a company and crushing it in Silicon Valley. So if you have a vision and you put a plan together, I'm very confident you're going to run through a bunch of walls. There's going to be obstacles, but there's a solid chance that you're going to be able to accomplish it as long as you've got that vision in mind and then you're working relentlessly to go get it. And I think this story with Sindhu is one hell of a motivating story to let us all know that we have a we live in a wonderful country and as long as we can wake up and we organize our resources towards our goal, we have a high probability of getting it. So without further ado, I will introduce you to Sindhu and let you hear her story. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, 
how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash. The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want. But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Sindhu, how are you? Great, Ryan. Thank you for taking the time. Me taking the time. Uh, you're the one that's got your uh, your hands in quite a few buckets trying to do some things. So I appreciate your time. And uh, as we were talking about, it's a bummer we didn't get it uh, to work last week when I was in California. It was literally 10 minutes from you. Uh, now I'm back in Minnesota and it's easier, God forbid, across the country. I saw your post after you had posted about buying a company, gone through Walker Dival's uh, um, acquis acquisition lab and I got on it and we had a little quick call and your story, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so fun. Yeah. So I won't hijack uh, the fame for you. So why don't you just give us a, an overview of, I mean, where do you even want to start? Because like, I mean, you came here and you're just making things happen these days. So how do you, how do you want to tackle this? Yeah. You know, I, I really would like to open with, I truly believe entrepreneurship through acquisition is the ticket to freedom for many women professionals who are super high potential. And yet are struggling with, um, how do I put it, like societal norms that essentially have them placed in less than leadership positions for their potential, right? So if, yep. if, if there are women leaders right now who know they have the leadership potential, who know that they can work hard, who know that they can they essentially have the talent to be CEO, and they're unable to be CEO because some people above them will not create that path for them, entrepreneurship through acquisition is that path. Right. And for, for yep. me, especially, I'm a woman of color. Uh, I'm Indian. Um, I went to the best in institutions. Right. So I went to IIT Madras, which is the top engineering school in, in India. Ooh, I got to stab you. I want to hear I want to I want to hear your pedigree for sure. Yeah. But I want you to tell when you told me on the story, if you're comfortable telling it is. You, you like, didn't you borrow some money to get on a plane ticket here? <laughs> so like you showed up with nothing, right? Didn't or I, showed like up, something I, close? I, mean, I showed up with a whole bunch of debt. Like I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Like, well, hopefully this so, is going to work. That's because yeah, I, I, so that, yeah, I, be I can actually tell you a little bit about my story. I was born in a very small town in India called Nellore. Like the, it's a coastal town in the, in the, in the state of Andhra Pradesh. Uh, I was born to a Christian mother and a Hindu father, which is very uncommon for India. Indians are not only, like, like, you know, Indians have their. I'm sure that didn't of, go over well, right? With the fam. Yeah. Indians, Indians have their version of being very caste conscious, but like I, I was born, forget, like I had no caste, subcaste. I didn't even have a religion when I was born. So I was this mixed background kid and I was a girl. And my father tells me that the first thought he saw that he had when he saw me was who's going to marry her. So the first thought that comes into the mind of an Indian parent is not this might be the next CEO of two damn companies. It's who's going to marry her. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. Maybe you're gonna so, buck that norm, right? <laughs> I know, I know. So essentially, like, I mean, I'll talk a lot about societal norms, but that's kind of where our, our society consciously is. They're not like, hey, this might be a really talented child with with a, a big ambition behind her, and really the hard work to get to some places. It's like, who's gonna marry her? Because that essentially, if if literally, I I I I, I sometimes tell this joke that if um, a decent husband had come along when I was seven my parents would have gladly married me off right like go get married have babies like you know have four babies by the time you're 24 you're done (laughs) would you would you have would you have sabotaged the marriage though probably oh i I, I mean (laughs) do i need need to answer that question it would have been torture for whoever married me (laughs) (laughs) you you just won the 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 lottery ticket of torture for life right (laughs) i know i mean also depends on your mindset right like we just might get along if you were super supportive but if you weren't like i mean forget get it like don't even don't even stop right? <laughs> so it. anyway having said that my husband and i've been together since i was 19 so we were literally our 21 years oh, and going two years growing up quite a bit <laughs> and we're still having fun so i mean we're still having tons of fun and it's mostly because i mean he really like believes that that I, I need to go places and i believe that too so it just like makes the two of us right <laughs> I love it. So anyway, so my my the first thought my dad has when he sees me is who's going to marry her and then he realized that probably nobody we knew, right? Because everybody like the Christians were only marrying Christians, the Hindus were only marrying Hindus, whatever. So he was like, okay, she's screwed. The way I'm going to get her out of this situation is to educate her so well that she doesn't need a man in her life. So I I I mean that's kind of when my literally, I mean very honestly, that's that's where that's when my my march really started i believe because Mm -hmm. again Mm -hmm. it's like you know when you make a choice the choice comes with a whole bunch of good things but it also comes with a whole bunch of negative things so in terms of the good things like right from get-go it was very it was made very clear to me that i needed to study i needed to study really hard and i need to do damn well at, at, at at my studies on the negative side, I literally, I mean, I have i have images of like, you know, receiving a beating or two if I didn't make first rank in class. I had to, st- I had to be top of my class. Otherwise, I had like some serious consequences waiting for me at home. And that just kind of is the duality of, of, mm-hmm. of the Indian living, right? Uh, luckily, I, I did have it in me to make, to be at the top of my class. And then I eventually ended up getting into the number one boarding school. So I was a seven-year-old who just got into fourth grade at this top boarding school in India called Rishi Valley, going to school with nine-year-olds who were in fourth grade. I was intellectually okay. Emotionally, I was a mess. Right? I mean, I just didn't even know where to start as a small town bumpkin in this very elite boarding school, having to huh. like literally make it from scratch. But I feel like that experience really taught me two things. It taught me I was pretty damn smart. If I could be in a class with nine-year-olds and actually hold my own in terms of what I could bring intellectually to the table, I probably was okay. Um, the second thing it really taught me was I could, I could, I, I was a fighter, right? I mean, I just wasn't there to give up because, again, like you know, even as a seven-year-old kid, my my choices were very clear to me. I could either go back to my small town and then give up this elite institution mm-hmm. education and then get beaten again for getting not getting first rank or i could mm-hmm. like choose to stay in the boarding school and really make something out of it and i chose to mm-hmm. stay i dug in and i think the biggest thing my boarding school did for me was make me a very authentic and intellectually honest person and that's, that's the biggest awesome. thing the whole school was about just are you like you know you know sometimes in the indian culture we're more we're more interested in saving face than getting to the honest truth and this boarding it sounds like, it also sounds like the Indian culture is a lot like Minnesota, where everybody is very passive aggressive. So it's all about making sure everybody's fine. Then we're going to tell you how you, we really feel in an email later. Yeah. So it was really <laughs> my boarding school that taught me that you you know you you can't kid yourself, and it's not okay to kid yourself. You kind of have to lean into what your authentic self mm-hmm. is. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I think it's actually fortunate, right? I'm I'm a, a pretty straightforward person. That's kind of how I've been all my career and I've not done too badly. So I'm like, Oh, there is a path to success. It's a more difficult path to success because you do, you know, Brené Brown talks about courage and vulnerability. I love Brené. Right. Yeah. 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 So for me, I'm brave enough to be vulnerable. I'm brave enough to be imperfect and I'm brave enough to work harder than what's expected to kind of meet my success. Right. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of, I guess Mm -hmm. my DNA. So anyway, boarding school gets over. 
and I get and my, now my parents, my number one parents, want me to get into the number one engineering school in India. And let me give you the odds there, okay? You have two hundred thousand students, high school students, writing this one set of one series of examinations in math, physics, and chemistry. About two thousand students get into these top elite institutions, so that's already a one percent, a one percent acceptance yeah, rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on top of that, about 150 of them are women. So I needed to be one of 150 women giving these exams across all of India. Oh, my God. So, and those were the odds, right? And and it was was a couple of years of studying 16 plus plus hours a week, uh, uh, 16 plus hours a day. And like all I did was study, sleep, and eat. <laughs> That's uh-huh. what I did. Yeah, right. And I got in. So that and and then my parents Good were like, you. "Okay, you know what? You're okay." <laughs> she doesn't need a man in her life. She'll be just fine. She'll be but just how, fine. How did how did, how did uh, America and coming in over here yeah. uh, uh, turn into the picture? Yeah. So essentially, to come to the U.S., there is a B line. So this is the number one uh, engineering institution in India, and um, there are two successful paths out of there. One is you go to one of the IIMs and do an MBA, or you come to the U.S. and if you can't do either, then you get a job, right? Like if you got mm-hmm. a job, then you were, you know, a bigger loser than the rest. But I was like, <laughs> okay, what? I'm going I'm to be just like, a paying job. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to be a middling loser, and I essentially, um, I, I got a scholarship to go to Ohio State, and my dad was very clear, right? He said we have no money. We we essentially used up all the money to send you to this elite boarding school and whatever, put you on a path. So you can only go if you have a full scholarship. I didn't even have money to buy my flight ticket. I had to go take a bank loan to get my flight ticket. And during this time, I also figured out that my dad had actually taken huge bank loans to send me to the elite places he was sending me to. So I was like, oh, it's not just my flight ticket I have to pay back. It's literally whatever. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I say this with a lot of pride today. But I bought my dad his first car or, you know, my family, their first car, my family, their first house. And until then, we'd been renting. We had been like going about in two wheelers, which in India is is common, but a little bit unsafe. But that that had been our life. And I got to say and, and obviously I in, in, the, in my journey, I also set up my brother. So it, it's almost like I was because I succeeded. And even though I was a girl, I mean, not even though like you know, I'm a girl and I succeeded. It's a both. And yeah. I was able to bring my entire family into this new age of success that they still have a really comfortable life. How proud do you right? feel about that? I mean, yeah. Is that, I mean, that is so, I mean, you must feel awesome about that. I'm curious, like, how do your parents feel about it? Like what, what's their perspective <laughs> so this, on it? This is a real conversation with my, with my mom last night. So she's like, uh, you know, Sindhu, you you did you did this podcast about a, mo- a few months ago. I, I I rewatched it, and as I rewatched it, I was like, oh my pretty baby, who's so successful, and I'm actually going to send your story to the top Indian film director so they can actually make a film on your life. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I mean, that tells you how my parents feel about it, right? They basically yeah, yeah, yeah. think that my life is worthy of an Indi- of a Bollywood movie. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. That's awesome. I know, seriously. Thanks, I have, Mom. And, and this, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, and this morning I was actually thinking about it, and I was like, you know, the number of interesting things in my life, they wouldn't fit in a movie, so it would have to be like an entire series spanning over multiple seasons. There you go. Well, so. but that just shows it shows you it's not a clear path, though, to success, especially yeah. coming from the odds of being a female in India. Then you, you literally take out a bank loan to get here. And what was your intent? Like, what was the gravitational pull? Like, what was what were you coming over to accomplish? I think the first thing was like, I mean, okay, this is how it looked to me in my child brain, right? The thing that just kept getting stuck in my child brain was if I don't make it, I'm going to end up married as a teenager. I'm going to have a whole bunch of kids by my early 20s. And I'm literally going to be married to a bloke I can't respect. And that was scary as shit. And the second bit of fear was if I if I'm in this situation, my family is screwed because they don't have a safety net. And then they're going to watch their child be miserable. And then they're going to have to put up with this immense sadness. And like, if that's not a fire in my belly, I don't know what is. Uh, How how did you how did you agreed? How did you come to that awareness? And the reason I'm asking is because so many people accidentally fall into that and then wake up and go, Oh shit. 
Yeah. How do I get out of this? And then they have the resentment and then the imposter, not imposter, but it's like the, I don't want to be in this circumstance, make emotional decisions to get out of it. Like what, what triggered you to be aware of that? So, so young, you know, that's a really good question, Ryan. So, you know, in all seriousness, the, the thing I was learning at this elite boarding school was honesty, authenticity. Don't bullshit anyone. Don't bullshit yourself. Just kind of like face the truth for what is right. I think as a human race, we tend to, we tend to prioritize being nice over being truthful and over being authentic and saying this is the absolute crap, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I can bring up racism, I can bring up sexism, I can bring up like all these things. And and I find that a lot of people kind of wish them away. Oh, you know, I'm colorblind and therefore there's no racism. Or, oh, I mean, I have two daughters and therefore I'm not sexist. Without actually taking a deep look at themselves and saying, who are you truly, right? Like, And I, I'll be the first one to admit that I'm a brown woman and I, and I have racist and sexist tendencies. Like literally, I, I, I mean, my natural tendency is, is to say, like if, I, if I'm talking of a CEO, I'll use the pronoun he rather than they or she, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's so ingrained into our society. So that essentially, to me, was, it, it's very apparent to me that that's, that's me. I have these racist and sexist tendencies that I have to overcorrect for with mindfulness and even as a kid because that's what I was learning at school like you know the honesty bit was really really apparent to me which is so the first thing you asked me was how do people actually become aware don't Mm -hmm. bullshit yourself Mm -hmm. man like so how did you how did you like uh, understood but like how how like what did the school or you go through where you realized that the pain because you know you mentioned Brene Brown and she talks about courage being in the arena and it's like the courage to deal with the honesty and the truth. Like, how did you, how, how did you realize that that pain, the short-term pain was yeah. worth the long-term benefit? I would say I had, okay, so that's actually a damn good question because I'd seen my dad do it, right? Mm. My dad is the first person to be educated in his family, which means I have uncles and aunts who are illiterate. Mm-hmm. And the way my dad did this was like, he describes his own life where he was selling uh, uh, essentially soda water on the Indian streets, pushing a cart with no with no footwear, like he was barefoot on hot Indian roads. And he was oh describing God, yeah. this life where he would actually push the soda cart in the afternoon once his college got over so that he could have enough funds to go fund his education. Oh, and, wow. I would, and he would talk of this, of and, and you know, the Indian soda water industry the hand build, there are no machines bringing up like, right, 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 these right. bottles. So he, they, you would have to manually put soda water into these glass bottles. And sometimes the glass bottles would explode in your hand. So he had oh like God. all these scars from like glass bottles exploding in his hand. And then after that, he would have to go back onto the roads and walk for hours together to catch the evening movie crowd. That was his life. Wow. And to me, like just, and, and I think the first thing starts with my parents honestly sharing what their position was, right? I mean, they were very honest about we've had some really hard life. It was education that got us to the other end. And by the way, we're investing in your education because you have this weird mixed background and that's your ticket out, right? Like we don't want you to be wow. like other women who are abused by their husbands or, and dowry is a big thing in India. We like, mm-hmm. we don't want any of that for you. So if you can lean in, not only will you hit escape velocity from your environment, but then you'd probably pull up a whole family as well. Right. That's so cool. There's something in there that really caught me is that it's telling your parents were telling the truth about how the world works Yeah, and then letting you do your own thing to get out and manage your circumstance, handle your circumstance. And I think that's a lot as leaders, like leaders of, companies or, or people or, or kids a lot of times they're trying to shed people and it's like no they have to understand the shit otherwise how are they going to get it through it themselves yeah and- i would say like the, the openness and honesty from my parents certainly helped but although i will i will say that it created childhood trauma right so mm. growing up i had i, I mean work, like you know the way i bring up my kids now i feel like there's a way to build responsibility without traumatizing them <laughs> <laughs> that's like a way to break the links and <laughs> yeah let's like okay that worked let's take the good and let's let's discard the bad right yeah exactly <laughs> i mean exactly so right i mean i think there's a way and because my the way my parents were doing it was oh you know you're not you, you know you were not at the top of your class we're going to beat you 
I mean, that to me is a, you know, yes, it did lead to That's some... the dictator, eh? That doesn't work necessarily. Exactly. Right? But then the, the, the philosophy that I use with my kids is almost like self-motivation, being super aware of what your talents are, being super aware that we live in a con- competitive world and how we're going to show up in a way we can honor who we are and we can honor the talents that God has given us. Right. Like it's it's literally yep. that. And uh, yeah, it's a very nurturing. Hopefully I'm, I'm doing something right with my parenting, but it's a very nurturing <laughs> environment, I feel. Yeah. So. As long as you're holding off on the beating, I think you're going a long ways forward. <laughs> my, my dad, my, like uphill both ways with the belt was always like, you're not getting that. So we're, we're doing our best as parents is what I was always told. <laughs> yeah, no, you, yeah. So 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 you're you get over here in a plane ticket and the goal was obviously success. I'm curious what your definition of success was and then how you did that was great context into it. Like your mindset and coming into America, like how did all of that unfold when you got here? So my number one goal when I came to the U S was to pay off my dad's debts. Like literally I had a single minded goal, which is I'm like, you know, my dad has a lot of debt. I'm going to pay it off by working in my twenties was just literally my single, single, single goal. And if I could have fun along the way, that was just like, extra bonus right so I, I I got into grad school and obviously I was I was I was I was focused on being a good student because again the best jobs don't go to the worst students right so I was literally put my head down and, and that's even such like, a good phrase even even as a grad student I was earning a, a I was earning a scholarship so I had I had a certain paycheck every month even with that scholarship I was the highest paid member of my family so I would send a portion of that of that paycheck back home to take care of my folk and to really invest in the community. Um, and I I was just like my single minded goal uh, uh, from getting out of college is picking a path, picking a career path that would do two things. Uh, first, give me tons of money and two hopefully allow me to have some fun. Right? So I picked up analytics as, um, as the line of choice, just because I was an engineer and math came easily and naturally to me, the thinking abilities did as well. And I felt like every company has data. So say, you know, the oil industry is down, I could go over to the pharmaceutical industry. If the pharmaceutical industry is down, I could go over to the banking industry. If the banking industry was down, I could go over to the tech industry. Like, I just felt like data was everywhere. So I just picked that. I, I mean, yeah, like the thought that you put into that career decision, Sindhu, like, I wonder if, I wonder how many actual people think about that that are W2 workers these days. Cause entrepreneurs, it's always like the shit's going to fall. Like you're kind of get used to like the, the moving boat, but like for a worker to think like that, I think is outside of the box. I mean, I did go to the best engineering school in India. So, I mean, I think, I think we've established that I have something in my upper rack, but nope. like, I mean, it's... Rack. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've not heard that before. That's good. So, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I was, and literally, I mean, it, it kind of came from a place of yes, financial security, but also kind of looking out for my folk. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, so you get into like, how, how was your upbringing, your mindset, the success, your goals and what success meant? How did that integrate and how did that reconcile against kind of the, the hierarchy climb of the professional world in America? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I actually had to do a lot of, a very small, quick, easy question, right? (laughs) No, I actually had to do a lot of unlearning, right? Like literally, I mean, what worked for my 20s did not work for me in my 30s. What worked for me in my 30s will not work for me in my 40s. And it was like constant reinvention to be like, what's the next version of me? Or like, what's a more authentic version of me? So essentially, mm-hmm. I um, I chose data and analytics as my career path right out of grad school. And I went to Chicago. I worked for JP Morgan Chase, HSBC, a few of the big name financial institutions. And the mortgage meltdown happened. When the mortgage meltdown happened, I was an employee of HSBC Mortgage Services, and they were retaining all of the top talent, right? And they offered me this job that would essentially look at portfolio runoff, which is decide who gets to keep their home versus not using data. And I'm like, I don't want that karma on my back, man. I mean, sorry, but like, that's just a whole bunch of bad luck. And that's, that's really, I I don't want that crap on my back. So I, 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 and it was a very scary position for me because I was working in the U S on a visa. So there were no jobs, forget about hiring someone with a visa. So you like, what a, what a crazy position that you're making a lot of money. You were one of the top people saved 
and you still want out and then no one's hiring and you're coming from an industry that no one's doing anything with. I mean, yeah, like I, I, I mean, I feel like, again, you know, when people say, can I be a CEO one day? The question that I really want people to ask is when shit hits the fan, can you show up? Right. Well said. And can you show yeah. up in not like a, not in, in not a halfway fearful situation? I mean, I had, I was scared to shit. But then, like, I, being scared to shit for long was not an option. I needed to do something about it, right? Yep. Um, I got I to gotta say, you know, uh, you know what squirrels are dead in the middle of the road? Yeah. The ones that, the ones that didn't decide which direction to go. <laughs> Isn't that the greatest? I love that. I absolutely <laughs> love that. Like, I'm a hustler. Make a decision. doesn't matter, no, right? seriously. Like, I feel like I thrive. Like, you, you throw me into a bullshit situation. I thrive there because I'm going to fight my way out of it. Like that's kind of when my superpowers like just start showing up left, right and center because I I mean, like literally that's what I live for. I kick myself out of crises. (laughs) So, so what did you do then? Where where did you turn to? Yeah. So I said no to the, no to the job. I said, no, give me my severance. I'm going to like go look for something else. And I started like LinkedIn was coming up back then. I started a LinkedIn campaign in 2009. Whoa. I mean, I basically started started getting in touch with everybody who I could respect as a hiring manager. Hmm. So I launched this campaign and I, I, I got a whole bunch of responses back. And I and, and, and also like a lot of people um, who went to IIT with me were in Silicon Valley. And they were like, you kind of have to look at this whole startup situation. So I targeted the startups as well. And one got of the it. startups in Silicon Valley hired me as an analyst. So I was like, okay, I'm going to California. <laughs> That's oh, kind of sweet. Fun. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, wow. Where, where were you living prior to that? Chicago. Was it, were you in New York? Chicago. Okay. I was in the Chicago, New York or something like that. So the, you, what a different culture shift. We're going from kind of the banking sector uh, and then going to Silicon Valley, which I was just, I was literally, I was at uh, one of the names of the companies was Silicon Valley XYZ company. But like, so in the heart of it, like what was the culture like there? And then how did your definition, you had mentioned some of what 20s to 30s to 40s. How did your definition of success and your goal that you were striving for change or evolve? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So, you know, your first question was the culture shift between Chicago and Silicon Valley. The first question my hiring manager, my, my hiring manager asked me when I got to Silicon Valley was, yeah, it was the same question. How, what, how, how's the culture shift? And I was like, what culture shift? I'm in the U.S. I just moved from one city. <laughs> That's not like, what, I don't even understand the question. It's the same country, right? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that's so isn't that so enlightening oh that's I funny mean, yeah. literally that was my answer because i was like i mean coming from india the whole u.s was like alien alien world and i was like okay <laughs> interesting was- you know i i gotta this is this sounds way off topic but i watched this uh restaurant entrepreneur in um in North Carolina speaks in there and he was Indian and he actually has now got 14 locations. It's Indian street food is the, is like his, and he said like people though Indian food and they're like, do you have any idea how big that damn country is? Like there's like 7,000 versions of Indian food. And I was like, Oh, I guess it's not just the shit you buy at Target, huh? No, seriously, like in, in India, when you say a different region, like it's really stark, right? Because you don't understand the language. You don't understand the culture. You don't understand the mannerisms, but in the U S it's pretty homogenous from an Indian perspective right because the yeah, right, right, right. same you have walmart here you have walmart there you i mean like literally <laughs> it's really so your freeways that's here awesome. your freeways there <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so great so so yeah, yeah. keep going um and um, then you had a next question which was my 30s and my 40s right like how i evolved so my 20s was all about getting my dad's dad's loans paid out and i finished it in my 20s right in my 20s i paid off awesome. all his loans i bought I, I bought my family their first car their first house and i was that like you know i'd so be proud cool. like i mean this is damn good and they're all well settled and then it dawned on and then i got married and then i was like oh i need to buy a family home in the silicon valley <laughs> like let's see <laughs> <laughs> the, the cheapest place in the u.s right i know i know i know but then luckily like both me and my husband i think we're financially savvy so literally we bought our first house in 2012 when when it was I, nice yeah, yeah. We've since yeah. Bought yeah. Two enough said no. <laughs> so we bought a house nice. in 2012 my husband was like oh no i, I don't think the math is going to work we'll just keep renting and i was like no 
we're not going to rent. And uh, yeah, so we we bought our house and I still remember we kind of had to pay some mortgage insurance because we couldn't even make the down payment at that time yeah. because I'd been funneling all my money back to India. And uh, yeah, so we essentially bought this house, I think with like a 10 or 15% down payment, which is like literally, I was like 10 bucks in that account, I'm going to like move this over. So that was my <laughs> late 20s That's where awesome. I was like, need to set up my own house. Then I became a mom and, was all, and then that became, oh, I, I basically... I, I, I didn't want to screw up my kids, obviously. So it was just leaning into becoming a good mom. And I looked at my own example of like being beaten. <laughs> I was like, no, we're going to do things a little bit differently. So that was that. And all along, my career was instrumental just because I knew that, okay, so there's been some research done. And essentially, the research says that daughters of women who work will end up working themselves, like they have a higher probability to work themselves. So I knew the financial independence that I had gained by working. And that was an example I had to set for my kids and not like work in a half-assed manner, right? Like it's not like yeah. I'm clocking in right, at right. nine and getting out at five. Like my, my kids are going to see their mom really be ambitious, look for big goals, because it was, it was very clear to me that that's what they're going to learn. If they essentially learn clocking in and clocking out and I work when it's convenient for me, like that's just a crap example to set for two young women full of potential right so i was like no way mm -hmm. i'm just going to lean in and i'm going to kick ass the second bit that that really dawned on me was this which is i like you know being a mom like many people are like oh you know i'm so focused on my career i i mean i don't want kids or whatever that's fine if that's who you are but really what having kids does to you is it opens up dimensions that you didn't even know were, were there so literally, I started leaning into just my emotional side for an Indian engineer to acknowledge that she has feelings is, is a utopian idea, right? I mean, feelings like, what are those? <laughs> Wait, I don't see the feelings in the spreadsheet. Where are they, right? <laughs> exactly, right? Well, you, you want me to have like an emotional connection with the damn spreadsheet? Are you out of your mind? Like, no. <laughs> oh, so I feel like that really opened me up. And as I started to look, get really ambitious for my own career, I went to Wharton. I went to Wharton, the Wharton Business School. And at Wharton was kind of where all the leadership courses opened me up to even more emotionally intelligent mm. training. And I went, I had this conversation with the dean, with the dean of Wharton. And she was like, wait a second. So you came to Wharton to learn feelings? Like Wharton is known as the Quan School and Harvard <laughs> is the feeling school. And she literally was like, she had to take a minute to register that. <laughs> but I'm like, if you're coming from an IIT, like anything more than this is really good training. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the interview with Sindhu. I absolutely love her passion, her motivation, and her transparency and bluntness. If you are interested in learning more about acquisition entrepreneurs or more about how valuations work, how to actually purchase a business, deal structures, how to grow the value of a company by projecting out the financials, and how to tie operational data to the financials so you can grow the equity value of your company and have choices, Go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit where you're going to get the five videos from uh, the five Intentional Growth Principles along with the financial scorecard that grades you on how well you're running the company like a financial asset along with the five videos that show you a case study on how to project out the value of your company and along with the Intentional Growth full podcast archive library. My goal is to condense everything that you need to get started to understand all of this material that we're talking about constantly in the podcast, give you more context to enjoy the podcast, dive back into the library. So if you like the topic about Walker Diables, buy them, build. I have an entire video section about Walker's book along with Acquisition Entrepreneurs and Walker's podcast interview. Uh, if you want to go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, that is in the link below. So thanks again, everybody for tuning in and I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast interview with Cindy. And you're like, hey, by the way, I said no to a job that was uh, kicking people out of their houses from data. So yes, I'm actually looking for feelings. <laughs> I mean, internally, I mean, all of us have feelings, whether we acknowledge it or not. Like all of us, I think, yeah, either we're in touch with them or we're not. So anyway, yeah. Well, well and actually, I'll comment on that. So it was like the, the last two weeks, I just got off a, a huge uh, kick for I was I went I was traveling around and I spoke to a, a like 10 Vistage workshops. So the average size company between 20 and 100 million. And this concept of like, why are you doing all of this? Because the money, like there's kind of the, the six, the money success has kind of got there to some extent. And people don't know. 
So yes, everyone has emotions because they're like, why am I doing this? Like, what is the definition of success? And you talk about this cultural undertone, especially in Silicon Valley. How much have you raised? How much revenue are you doing? You know what I mean? And it's just like this trying to grasp other dimensions of that, I think is very difficult. So I wouldn't poo-poo it too much at all. And I'm not saying you were, I'm just saying like, it's a thing. I mean, it is a thing. Absolutely. Like, I mean, the quant stuff is super important. Like it's a both and, right? Mm -hmm, If you're just mm -hmm. doing quant, I feel like you can become, you you literally can become a robot that's putting out a lot of, a lot of, a, a lot of unintended crap into the world. Right. Like essentially, if you're, I mean, I don't know, look at Uber, for example, like Uber was a super successful company, but it had its share of scandals in terms of yeah. Like yeah, how yeah, it treated yeah. women early on. Right. Like, I mean, that's the kind of shit that happens when mm-hmm. you're just not fully aware. And then again, mm-hmm. like, I mean, if you're just like, oh, kumbaya all the time, like, I mean, you're not going to have a successful business. Well, and it's actually, we don't, we, we definitely don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I think it's case in point that the main conversation in AI right now is ethics and alignment. It's not about the algorithm. It's about how the hell and what does it mean to be human? Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So whatever is happening with AI, at least like as a data professional, as I look at what's happening, it's again, the duality of it, right? I mean, I use chat GPT literally on a daily basis, right? It it, it, Mm -hmm. it writes my emails for me. It writes my social media content, like all of it. And when I look at like, when I look at the potential, there is no doubt it's immensely useful because again, like if I hire a Indian social media content lead, that Indian social media content lead can now write US content using chat GP. It's as, it's as good right. as that, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yep, so yep, yep. huge benefits for my business, no doubt at all. But the access to it really worries me because I think of my dad who was first educated in his family and my aunts and uncles were illiterate. And I'm like, what's their access to chat GPT and how far behind are they, are they going to get, like even further behind because they don't have access. I, yeah, there's a whole conversation to be had there where like it's going to cement the haves and the have nots in a whole different fashion. That's a long conversation. I, I amen to that. Going back to so as you're as you're working on being a mom, being a good leader, doing a little bit differently, you're focused on your career at the same time. Somewhere along this uh, this path, you realize to have true freedom is to have your own company. Yeah. How did that start? Did it, was it kind of an immediate thing? Did it yeah. kind of start to fester over a long period of time? I think the precursor to that was admitting to myself that I needed help, right? So I was actually in workplaces where I felt like, this is my perception, which where I felt like if my talent and my potential were up there, the work that I was doing and the environments that I was, I was involved in were really compromised. Like I just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't in an environment that allowed my talents to shine. And we could say, okay, that's society or that's whatever. Like a simple example, right? At a recent company that I was at, I had been rated, I'd, I'd, I'd been rated a top employee at almost like every single company that I've ever worked for. And I'd just been rated top rated employee. And I had been, so they have a scale. It says, what's your potential and what's your performance? My performance was off the charts. But my potential was like, oh, you need to work a little bit more on your potential. So I'm like, okay, let's do the math a bit, okay? I actually, <laughs> You can go right to the math. I love it. <laughs> so seriously, let's do the math on this. You're telling me that, that my potential needs work. I am one of the top Indian talent out there, irrespective, right? That's just my Indian education. I went to Wharton, which means that I'm one of the top business talent in the U.S., and you're telling me my potential needs work. Like, I don't have the potential for greatness. What was the justification behind it? Like, like was it just lip service or like, what was it? You know, the, the words that are commonly used are, um, um, you need more executive presence or you need, uh, yeah. So, or you need. For the listeners in, I just kind of made a face like, what the F does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You need more executive presence. Um, yeah. You, 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 you need, you need, um, you, 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 essentially the, when I, when I kind of listened in to what, what, what was really being said behind the lines, it just basically meant you need a grand old boys club behind you and you, those grand old boys need to like you. And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> Like, that's what I'm getting. And while, while this is ha- this is the feedback I'm getting, a top-rated employee, right? Like, I'm getting these top bonuses and whatever. I go to my boss, and I'm like, what does this mean? Like, I'm the best talent out there. That's what all my credentials tell me. What do you mean I need, like, more potential? 
he was like, why are you even talking about this? Just look at the amount you're making. Like you're making amazing amount of money in Silicon Valley. You, I just gave you a whole bunch of options. What are you complaining about? And then while I'm having this conversation, a colleague of mine who's a level junior to me gets a double promotion and goes a le- level above me. He's white and male. And he's been on maternity leave or paternity leave for six months of the year. <laughs> God. And somehow, like, you know, like, when I bring this, this up, shit. oh, he has amazing potential. He's one of our top performers and this, that, and the other. But just, like, you can justify any bullshit in any way you want, but then it's up to you as an individual to smell that bullshit and say bullshit, right? Smell the, smell the bullshit. I love it. Yeah. yeah so it's... I smelled the bullshit, and I was like, I need, and I was already working with an executive coach at that time. So it was first, like, I'd, I'd actually been fed a lot of bullshit in my, in my life, right? I'll give you an, another example. Another, like, you know, so I, I was a director. This other person was a senior director, gets promoted to VP. She's the senior director of sales and marketing analytics, gets promoted to head of analytics, VP position. Going from a sales and marketing senior director position to a VP position, the first question she asked me in our one-on-one meeting is, Sindhu, what's a lead? Is it a person or is it an account? Okay. So this is the oh, person who just been promoted just, yeah. to VP of analytics. And I literally was like, WTF in like bright gold letters, <laughs> like WTF. And then like, I'm getting the bullshit of, oh, executive presence and you need to like watch your tone and whatever. And this woman who just basically can't even differentiate whether he is a person or an account is now like head of analytics. And, oh, that, and when yeah, I talk about like, you so know, white privilege or white supremacy, like that's it. Like that's it. Yep. And um, anyway, so your your question was, um, how did you recognize? So then I realized that something quite right was not happening, right? So I worked with an executive coach who smelled the bullshit for me too and said, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit to me. <laughs> I love it. And said, Sindhu, with your directness, with your authenticity, with who you are, unfortunately, you're just not going to meet your goals in corporate America. You need to go create a company by yourself. So I looked around and I said, okay, how do I create this company by myself? And I I am a data professional. So I have a, and there's a clear opportunity with data, which is that many of the top data companies today, whether it's Snowflake, whether it's Databricks, whether it's all the cloud services, AWS, Azure, Google, like all of them are essentially, essentially like the wood for the house, the nails for the house, the whatever, the stuff for the house. Nobody is building the house itself. Right. So as people are putting out data and reams and reams until chat GPT came about the meaning behind what this data meant. It's like having like huge, huge uh, oil rigs and not knowing what to do with the oil. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And especially even with chat GPT, there's still a gap. And the gap is every company has an opportunity to organize its data assets to generate more revenue and to manage its budgets. But then because of all the bullshit that exists between how it's reported, like people don't have visibility into where am I sub suboptimally performing in generating mm-hmm. revenue and where am I suboptimally using my budget? And an analyst can, so that's what my company Meaningful Data does. So essentially it optimizes data assets at a company to help other companies generate more return on invested capital. So that's my data company. And then on the other side, I, I was also like, I was you know, the number, so with the with the data company, it's really important to find people who will actually do stuff with the data. If I say, here is an opportunity, I need somebody to go do something with that opportunity. Otherwise, it's useless, right? The action mm-hmm. has to happen with actionable recommendations. And I just, I, I knew that if I was waiting for somebody else to take the action, I'd be waiting a long time. So I said, mm-hmm. I need a company that can actually do the actions. And I'm going to be the CEO of it. And that's why I acquired a second company where whose growth opportunity was data-driven decision-making. So like, let's unpack that too, because as you, you, you haven't even described what the company does, yeah. like to your point, every company needs that. Yes. That's what's so fascinating. When you and I started chatting and I was explaining to what you're doing, what we're doing on finance and we've like, we're naturally getting into this data world too, because it's like, once you build the skeleton of the, of the financials and you have the target normalized EBITDA, then it's like, how the hell are we going to get there? And it's all data and everybody's data is shit. Yeah. So regardless of the industry. So like, Let's talk through when you said you acquired, like, let's go back to like, why so did you think, so like, what was the opportunity me, so that you were I, trying to, so yeah, my keep, second company that I acquired is a corporate events company. And people are like, why, why what? corporate events, right? <laughs> like, you know, you're a data professional. Like why, my dad asked me this all the time. I'm like, dad, 
it doesn't matter what industry it is. It just matters that I have fun with it because once I bring the data to it, it's going to be super successful. And, that, and that's it. Like when I looked at corporate events, I went through the same thinking. Every single company has corporate events. Like tell me one company that's, you know, on the map that doesn't have corporate mm-hmm. events, whether it's a conference, yeah, right. whether it's an investor summit, whether it's a partner summit, whether it's an employee engagement event, whether it's a holiday party, summer picnic, like every single company. And and again, like if pharma goes down, I go to tech. If tech goes down, I go to finance, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. Maybe at the, fl- the, the anti-fragile okay. nature of the industry. Yeah, it's, horizontal. And- it's, a, it's a horizontal market. And so, then, so, yeah. You know, go, 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 go for it. It's a horizontal market and it's growing at a CAGR of about 18%. And it's got a total addressable market of about 100 billion so <laughs> okay like that right there you already you were doing the great lead into what was my next question and it was that you know was it wharton was it uh and is it what's the name of the indian school engineering school you went to iit the indian IIT. institute of technology yeah, okay okay got it so the, the um iit or wharton where like where did you learn whatever your level of understanding is on finance of what valuations and equity growth meant, because like one of the biggest questions, and I'll just kind of give you the overarching question that, that I usually try to get people to, because is most people don't understand how companies are valued and how to create growth in the equity of it. So I'm wondering, did you get that education in school? Was it ingrained in the Silicon Valley culture? And the reason that the, the question is important is because why go buy a company that, well, obviously you're going to buy a company for return, right? Yeah. But like, I'm curious, like how yeah, all so that thought to, like, process was. Yeah, so I had to like put a pin on where I learned it. It was actually HSBC. So okay. at HSBC, HSBC was like a backyard for every, like you know, McKinsey consultants and partners who just didn't want to travel anymore. They all mm-hmm. came to HSBC. So literally, I mean, I had leadership that was that was coaching me on a daily basis, right? I mean, these Got people it. are like super ingrained into into junior talent because that's their Got legacy, it. right? So I was like having almost daily interactions with supremely talented people who really boiled down business into one thing. Business is nothing but how much revenue are you making? How much are you spending to make that revenue? And is there something left over? And as an analyst, like, especially looking at the data, I was like, that's simple math, man. Like, I didn't need to go do four years of engineering to understand that. (laughs) I could have have understood that at seventh grade, like maybe fifth grade, right? So, yeah. So like then like when you're thinking about I'm gonna go buy a company and I know we're we're running I'm in the t- uh, the time here yeah and uh, so you can kind of be I'll kind of give you the next eight minutes of how to kind of tell the story is like you go into the acquisition lab from Walker Dival because I've been talking at all these workshops that I'm going around talking about I'm introducing this concept of acquisition entrepreneur so like how did you go about it. Like, kind of give us the overall summary of that in, in whatever way you want to, because I just want to give you the free reign to explain it while we're looking at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, I understood pretty much because I'm an analyst, and that's how I grew in my career, right? Like, the way I grew to be a leader of analytics was to help my companies generate that profit. How much are you spending? How much are you generating? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference? And how do you grow that, right? And I went to Wharton, which was a lovely fit because Wharton teaches you that on steroids. Because now I understood net present value. I understood net operating incomes and 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 um, the the cap rates. I understood uh, return on invested capitals. I could put very sophisticated terms to to, to essentially what I'd been to doing. To data. Yeah. You know, since HSBC. Like, oh, this is actually, these are the acronyms of what I've already been doing for 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> <Got it. laughs> right. Like in a more sophisticated manner. And... Um, Essentially, okay, so here's kind of how business valuation, like, you know, and then I read Walker's book. The thing mm-hmm. about Walker's book that really spoke with me is this. He's like, there are, there are a million companies up for sale, right? Millions of companies up for sale. However, you as an intelligent entrepreneur, intel- intelligent acquisition entrepreneur, you're not going to buy some average company. You're going to buy that company that you can grow using your talent. So that just like completely reduces your pool. And here I was with a a tech talent, a data talent, and that just kind of meant that I could grow a company that could be grown using data, right? I Mm kind of had the e-commerce skill set. I have the B2B sales skill set. I have a data skill set. And I was like, what is that company that I can can apply digital marketing, e-commerce, B2B sales tactics, data to and grow like crazy? 
and and that just narrowed the pool down and then the second thing i was looking for is i i, I don't appreciate bullshit so i really wanted a company <laughs> love it so much no seriously like i mean i don't i don't appreciate crap so i was i was looking for a company that that just wasn't crappy right like you were running it you know the sellers needed to be running it well they needed to be they needed to know what the hell they were doing it needed to be scalable successful and, and on a what, scale of like 1 to 10 Sindhu, of like how organized their data was but you almost were like, i'm assuming you'd want to like maybe at least a 2 or a 3 so there was enough for you to grab and run with yeah. like not nothing not a 10 right yeah exactly so the company that i bought was i would say about a 6 so they had hmm. some data so it was actually pretty good but then the 6 to 10 is what's going to put it on steroids because they were doing the current business operations at a 5 or a 6 level but then like you think about corporate events and you think about how that scaled. And especially when, uh, you know, the biggest, the biggest problem people have with corporate events is how do I measure its success? How do I know it's been successful? And as an analyst, I can tell you, I can tell you, (laughs) no, literally I can tell you whether it's been successful or not. I can write the measurement plan. I can look at the business goals and I can say, did it work for you or not? It's as simple as that. And so it just kind of gives me, Okay. You cut out all the bullshit. Did it work? Yes. Well, here, why? Here's yeah, why. Exactly. It didn't work. Like maybe if you did X, Y, and Z, it might work. Now let's actually generate a calendar for you of events that might work, right? And we'll measure that and we'll show you whether it works. And that that's kind of what I can bring to the table. And uh, where Walker's Acquisition Lab really, really hit it home for me was this. I went to Wharton. I have an MBA from Wharton. And yet when I went to the Acquisition Lab, whatever would have taken me as a Wharton grad about six months to a year to generate was fed to me over a few weeks. Mm. So for me, I didn't have to waste the time to go and say, I'm going to like go and like reinvent the wheel. Walker Dibel already created the wheel. I just needed to go pick it up and use it. That's awesome. So like when you, and that's a combination of how Sorry, to find I want to say company. one more thing. Yeah. 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 The second thing it does is Walker Dibel is one of the most connected people in the ETA world. So if Walker knows you, you know everybody Walker knows. And essentially, yep, I got yep. connected to my lender. I got connected to my, like, everybody that I needed. Like, my legal team, my my whole team kind of came out of there, right? So That's awesome. And 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 he's given frameworks on how to find the companies, like you're saying, the, the how to hire the team. And did you use an SBA loan? Or I like, did what was use the an finance? SBA loan. Okay. And here's the third thing what the acquisition lab does for you. You can actually take your deal, create a whole presentation of what your deal is, present it to Walker and say yay or nay. And he'll give you your solid, honest opinion, He'll his honest opinion. And the number of businesses he said no to, I've watched it myself. It's crazy. So that's the third thing hmm. that happens, right? So yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. And and I know uh, we're getting close to the wrap up here. Is uh, in just because you said it to me on our on our last call, uh, the prep call is like <clears throat> this being an events company. You knew that they were had survived one of the hardest things that that industry had ever had. So there was some stability that you saw, yeah, and how that they were running it. Yeah, there was some stability, certainly, and more importantly, like if this events company could have survived during COVID when all events went to shit. Like there was hope. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Sindhu, this is so fun. I, I got a, a uh, coming to the close here. I got a couple questions for you. One is that, well, what do you, what do you hope to do with, uh, with this business? Is it buy more businesses? Like, what do you, like, what's yeah. your ideal so version of success? Public. So I, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I believe that corporate events in the U S okay. So the mission of my events company is to create joyful workplaces with deeply connected people. And we're not there yet, right? Like if you think about the number of companies that don't even have a family day, like, come on, man, honor the kids of your employees, right? Like have a family mm-hmm. day where, they can, where the kids can actually come. And that, that's how you create engagement. Like for me, at least right now, corporate America thinks engaged employees are optional. I think not. Right. Right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like if you don't have engaged employees, like what are you doing? Engaged customers are not optional. Engaged partners are not optional. Engaged investors are not optional. So partner summits, investor summits, employee days, um, customer conferences like this is like almost like are you brushing your teeth every damn day? Right. Yeah. Go start brushing yeah. your teeth. Right? <laughs> then start flossing. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's kind of what I hope to create. And uh, really, like I, uh, my 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 aim is to work with Wharton professors to create that 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 connection. Right. Like what? How I do you create it. human connection? 
I love it. All right. Uh, last question. Uh, the the definition of the word intentional is a question I ask people. It's new because I love to hear people's definition of it. It's the name of the show. Curious when that when I say intentional, what does that mean to you? But to me, intentional is getting really honest with where you're coming from. Like, don't bullshit yourself. Don't bullshit people. Just honest and authentic. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Where can people find you if they want to follow you, reach out? LinkedIn touch, is the best place. I, I try to be active on LinkedIn. I would say connect on LinkedIn, always looking to interact with new people. And also go to We Crush Events and contact us for your corporate events. Love it. Okay. And with that, nice. mic drop. Sindhu, thank you so much. And we'll see you later. All right. Bye, Ryan. Thank you. What a fun story. I absolutely have so much admiration for Sindhu. I mean, my childhood and the things that I've gone through seem like uh, a, a gnat's ass compared to what she's gone through. And she still has succeeded beyond many people's wildest dreams. And so my big takeaway is we have to just constantly refine our vision. What are our expectations for ourselves? And then let's wake up and execute like hell towards the goals that we have because things are possible. And we live in a wonderful country where we can actually organize resources in the, hopefully the most efficient way possible. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges we have, but we are given a huge opportunity to go get what we want. So we have to clarify what the hell we want, and then we have to build a plan to go get what we want. Go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, as you've been hearing me talk about. If you want to dive in and understand the five Intentional Growth Principles, take the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard and dive further into the additional podcasts. You're always free to go uh, jump right on into the Intentional Growth Academy or schedule a discovery call with me if you're interested in the financial dashboard and actually just jumping right in and building your financial plan uh, and or would like to talk about what it would like uh, to be helped and engage with the Arcona Financial Services. But the easiest way is check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit and stay tuned for next week where I'm super pumped for our guests who are two brothers that have bought hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate, went broke, then ended up selling 10,000 golf carts in 45 days for over $75 million in revenue that ended up in their PayPal account. And they're gonna tell this crazy wild ride of ups and downs, peaks and valleys of entrepreneurship. And I, when I met the Riley brothers, they said to me, it's a story from rags to riches to rags to riches. And I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And I know you're going to love it. So make sure to stay tuned for next week. Thanks, everybody. And I will talk to you later.